Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Thinking and responding to the world around you and communicating and the science of intelligence. So, if you have a big brain, it's easy to understand how you might interact with the world around you. But what if you don't? How does a creature like a jellyfish learn without having a large central nervous system? Plus, how can you talk to a plant and is it possible for a plant to respond back? In Lyman Frank Baum's classic story, The Wizard of Oz, and subsequent all novels in that series, radio plays, movies, a central character is, of course, the Scarecrow. Not to give too many spoilers away here, the Scarecrow is on a quest for a brain because despite having the ability, or at least some ability, to stand in the fields and scare away birds, he has a desire for recognition, something to give him true intelligence, a central brain. Now, long story short, he goes a long way not to acquire one, but to actually get the knowledge that he has recognised. And in many other ways that what we're about to talk about here is a similar story. Because there are many things in our world that don't have what we would think of as a central brain. And yet, like the Scarecrow, they can overcome challenges and do great things. They don't pass the initial definition of having a big brain, but they do make some big brain moves. And that's what researchers have published in the journal Current Biology, an investigation of the way in which something that doesn't have a central intelligence and yet is still managing to learn about its experiences and learn and improve its behaviours based on something that happened to it in the past. This particular paper published in Current Biology, there's lead author is Jan Bielecki, along with Sofia Kratin Dam Nielsen, Gusta Nachman and Anders Gam. Now, they have been investigating a particular type of jellyfish. And why? Because, well, jellyfish are a really fascinating form of life. Now, the paper was focused at a certain type of jellyfish, the Caribbean box jellyfish, Tripidalia cystostophora. And the reason why they picked this particular jellyfish is it's relatively simple. But despite being a simple organism, it has a really complex visual system with 24 eyes embedded in their bell-like body. They live in mangrove swamps, and the animal uses its vision, so many eyes, to steer through the murky waters and swerve all the way through the mangroves around the tree roots and snaring prey. Now, this is a pretty important feature. But how they manage to use all of these eyes collectively, tie that in with locomotion, and avoid obstacles to go hunting, requires a lot of processing of information from those eyes coming in, sorting through all of them, and then making the connections to the limbs to go after and hunt for that prey. And more importantly, if you're going to get good at doing that, well, you've got to practice and learn how to navigate those waters. So that's what researchers from Keele University have been investigating. Because whenever you think about a nervous system, size and shape isn't as significant. A good test is, can they learn? Because learn is how you measure the assessment of performance. 
if they are able to learn and learn effectively and quickly, then it's a pretty efficient nervous system. So this is a good way with creatures that we can observe in action to understand how their natural behaviors work and understand what makes it use all of those features to the best of its ability. So the team took a round tank and dressed it with gray and white stripes, trying to mimic what you would have in a mangroves. The mangrove tree of roots, far, far away, they would, well, for this jellyfish eyes, just appear like stripes. And then they observed the jellyfish in the tank for around seven minutes. Initially, the jelly would swim close to these seemingly faraway stripes and sometimes bump into them. But in the end of the experiments, those jellyfish had learned they increased the average distance to the wall by about 50%, staying away from that barrier. Even though these fake illusory roots would normally have been far away, they realized and learned that the wall was actually much closer. And they would actually do a huge number, a quadruple number of pivots and dodges to avoid running into that wall. It basically cut its contact with the wall by half. And that was a pretty quick learning, only after about eight minutes. Now, this means that the jellyfish can learn. They're processing visual information first, those stripes on the wall, suggesting an object is far away. And then when they get the mechanical, physical feedback that it's not actually far away, it's close and they've hit something, they learn to adjust their body to then take in that visual information, process it differently and do a different action. This is a pretty interesting achievement for something that seems quite simple in nature. The jellyfish has a complex structure. And if you want to analyze any big nervous system structure, looking at a simple case can actually teach you a lot. Now, in a ner nervous system in a jellyfish is pretty simple. This one has a huge number of eyes, but the rest of it is doesn't have a large central brain that you would might otherwise consider. So by now studying in the model case here, you have a better chance of understanding how brains work and nervous systems work in other creatures. So the researchers sought to under, identify the underlying processes of how a jellyfish was doing this associative learning by then isolating out different sensing techniques that it was using. And they focused in on the visual sensory centers called the rafilia. Each of these structures house six eyes and generates like pacemaker pulse signals that then govern the jellyfish's pulsing motion. Now, they send more spikes in frequency of pulses when the animal tries to swerve away from an obstacle. It's a pretty simple closed system there where the eyes are processing information and shooting out pulses saying dodge, dodge as a response to a small group of eyes to a small group of tentacles. Now, the team showed that the stationary rafalum moving gray bars to mimic the animals like approaching an object and the structure didn't respond to the light gray bars interpreting them as far away however after the, they were trained when they saw the the bars coming approach they started to mimic that dodging signal and they could even make electric simulations that mimic the actual mechanical stimulation of a collision and then send the pulse out to to get out of the way so the jellyfish is really combining visual and mechanical stimuli to process 
the world around it. Make decisions or what to do based on what it has around it and learn and adapt those as the circumstances changes. It's not just one fixed response, it was actually one that was adaptive and changing. And that's really fast to have learned in seven or eight minutes. That's a very quick response in building up a nervous system. And they might even be possible of more complicated learning than that, but you know, this is the point of this study here, to understand how these jellyfish could adapt and change to an environment and what physically happened for them to be able to sense and process that. They don't have a large centralized brain, but they do have connections between these groups of eyes and the pulsing that they use to dodge and avoid objects. So even though a jellyfish doesn't have a really large big brain that you and I would think of, it is still capable of learning, and learning quickly, adapting to the world around it. This paper was published in the journal Current Biology, lead author is Jan Bielek. is obviously also communication and communication is important because with communication we can help warn each other of danger and if you look at the animal kingdom often there's warning signs between members of a certain species to dodge or avoid predators stay away from a particular type of food or otherwise direct themselves somewhere else and in the same way it works in the reverse. If there's food, often there is some attract signs as well, which is also used for mating. This kind of communication is really important for the survival of a species, but it's not limited to a single species. There's communications across species. A dog growling or barking at another creature sends a message to stay away. A lion's roar, similarly. And humans do the same thing when they talk to their pets. But imagining talking to something not just an animal if we could talk to a plant well we could have the same benefit of communication with them not only expecting to make friends but in the way that we talk with animals we can warn them of approaching danger or help them understand something that's about to happen like perhaps extreme weather this seems crazy, but the fact that we communicate across species and nature communicates across species all the time is really important. So is it possible for us to be able to talk to plants? Because after all, we know that certain types of plants are able to communicate, we believe, amongst themselves through chemical signaling. So there's a way that maybe we could get in on that action. And that's what researchers from the Sainsbury Laboratory in Cambridge University have been investigating. They've recently published a paper in the journal PLOS One Biology. And lead author on this paper is Boss Larsen, along with Hoffman, Camacho, Clark, Lagarius, Jones, and Jones. Now, Early experiments with a certain type of model plant, tobacco, Nicotiana bethamania, have shown that they can activate plants' natural defense mechanisms, their immune response to the plant, using a light-based stimulus as a messenger. 
Now, light is a pretty useful tool for communicating with a plant. It's so important for them, and they have a lot of senses designed around listening to, finding, moving towards, and otherwise dealing with light as its, its primary food source for them. So using light as a signaling tool or stimulus is a pretty good idea. It's a universal means in, of communication in, for humans, but for plants, well, we could use that light messenger as part of the tools and suites we have to communicate about what is happening around the plant. Now, this team in Cambridge University had previously engineered a series of biosensors using fluorescent lights to visually communicate real-time what is happening inside of a plant at a cellular level. They could reveal and monitor and track the dynamics of critical plant hormones by sending back fluorescent signals from what was happening inside of the plant. In this way, the plant was speaking about its situation. Not really, but there was basically just a way of having another sensor there using light as the feedback element. This enabled, for want of a better word, scientists to see how the plants were reacting to environmental stress. One way you could think about that was the plants talking to the humans to explain what they were feeling. It's a lot more chemistry based than that, but that's in essence what was happening. Now, what they've developed is a new tool called Highlighter, which uses a specific light conditions to activate the expression of certain target genes in plants. Now, this would get them, potentially, to trigger their defense mechanisms. So, why would you do this? Like we talked about before, getting the plant to undertake some response in reaction to a signal would be really useful. Hey, you're, there's bugs around here. You need to activate your natural defense mechanisms. If you could send a signal to the plant to enable them to or turn on those defense mechanisms, that would really help the plant. And we could drive that stimulus with perhaps a light-based tool. And that's what the researchers were thinking. Now, if you could warn plants of an impending disease outbreak or pest attack, you could get those plant defenses activated early. That early warning gives a chance for the plant to respond better. In the same way we could potentially activate before the weather event hits, like a heat wave, a hot day, drought or frost, we can activate the parts of the plant through genetic activation that would conserve or consume less water. This would help mean that the plants had an extra heads up on the problem that they were about to face. One of the challenges of having a light-based signaling system is that light for a plant is important, but it also changes over the day. If you have different lighting conditions, nighttime or daytime, there's a lot of other ambient there that could mess up with any other light signaling. And they were originally wanting to use green for on and red for off. But it's a bit trickier than that because of the changing conditions. And where they ended up with was one that works regardless of day or night cycle that was present in. And at the moment, they use blue light conditions. And then in the daytime conditions, they use green and red. And this enables them to do this selective on-off switching. They, at the moment, showing a demonstrated optogenetic control of plant immune system response, pigment production, and yellow fluorescent protein. And this is all really cool, but what they want to do is expand that toolbox of optogenetically signaled responses in plants to include things like drought response and frost protection and so on. 
These will all come with time, but it's a great proof of concept showing that you can engineer your plants to respond to light triggers. So not only can you get information out of a plant with just light responses, you can also send information to the plant to help it better survive. This means you won't be able to talk to your plants, but that's not really the point the University of Cambridge has been trying to work on with researchers like Bo Larson. They have been trying to find ways to send messages and receive messages from the plants to help them survive. It doesn't mean you'll be holding a conversation with them, but it does enable some form of communication. This paper was published in the journal PLOS Biology with lead author Bo Larson and others from the University of Cambridge. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Talking to plants and getting messages to and from them, plus ways that jellyfish can learn without having a large brain. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.